This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Matthew 12, verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We pray now as we study this passage, uh, Lord, one about which much speculation has been made. We pray that you would open our eyes and give us wisdom to understand your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have seen the movie Expelled. If you have, you know that uh, the film is uh, an expose of Darwinist intolerance against anyone who dares to question the prevailing evolutionary orthodoxy. Well, at the end of the movie, Ben Stein is interviewing Richard Dawkins, uh, author of the book The God Delusion and uh, noted proponent of Darwinism. And in what, at least for me, was one of the defining moments of the film, Stein asks... Uh, Dawkins to explain the origin of life. Dawkins' answer? Spacemen. Perhaps 
Dawkins suggests, aliens from outer space came and seeded the earth with life. I kid you not. You know, as I was hearing that, thinking about that, Romans 1, came to mind, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Because you see, sometimes people will go to any length to avoid Jesus, even to the point of sounding utterly ridiculous. And the passage before us is just such a case in point. Uh, Jesus, as we read, encountered this man who was demon-oppressed. I don't think that indicates any, anything different than demon-possessed. I think the same thing. There's demonic activity powerfully present and at work in a destructive way in this man. And it, we read that he was blind and mute. Uh, and all it says here is that Jesus healed him so that he could speak and he could, he could see. But obviously this involved the the exorcism, the casting out of this demonic presence in the man, because that's what the Pharisees pick up on. Now we've said before that the Bible distinguishes between physical sickness and demonic activity. You know, some some today would say, well, then their primitive mindset, they just they equated the sickness as the work of demons. Well, the Bible itself makes a distinction between the two, and let's give people credit. They may not have had the technology we do, but they certainly were not stupid. Uh, at any rate, uh, the Bible does distinguish the two. Nevertheless, it is quite possible, and in fact, it seems this is the case here, that part of this man's physical difficulties were a result of the demonic possession, as we've already seen. Uh, demonic possession or oppression of a person is destructive and self-destructive. Even as Jesus casts the demons out into the pigs and they go and destroy the pigs, well, this man apparently uh, was affected physically by the presence of this demon. And Jesus uh, heals the man, and the people were, of course, amazed, verse 23, and they, they are asking questions. Can this man be the son of David? Actually, the way it's phrased in Greek, it seems to imply maybe a negative answer. This man can't be the son of David, could he? Almost as if they're not quite sure, but, but these kinds of miracles seem to point to that fact. The son of David being a, a way of referring to the long-awaited and promised Messiah. And so there's this speculation, is Jesus the Messiah? Well, verse 24, the Pharisees who heard this charged Jesus... They don't deny that it took place. They can't deny that it took place. So they have to come up with something else. So they charge Jesus with doing the things that he's doing by the power of Satan. Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Satan himself. Jesus is teaching people the truth. Jesus is healing sickness. Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is making people whole. And he's doing this by the power of Satan? Well, that's that's what they that's what they charge. Now the Pharisees weren't dumb, many of them very well educated, and yet their hearts are hardened against Jesus in their vehement opposition to Jesus, to the point that they really start to sound rather silly in the kinds of things that they're saying, including this. A very foolish statement. But you know, it wasn't a unique charge. And in fact, the Pharisees may only have been echoing some of the thinking about Jesus that was already making the rounds on the grapevine. 
For example, John chapter 7. Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? John 9. There was a division among the Jews because of Jesus. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Well, I listened to him. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. How can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And in perhaps one of the most poignant uh, of such passages, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, when Jesus' family heard of, of his ministry and what was going on, they went out to seize him, for they said he is out of his mind. His family. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. So this wasn't a unique charge that the Pharisees are making against Jesus here. There were other people saying, Well, he's demon-possessed, or he's insane, or he's out of his mind, his own family saying that. Well, here in this passage, Jesus addresses these rumors, this talk, these charges that are made against him. To us, they seem absurd, of course, but the rumors were there, and Jesus does address them. And basically... He shows that there are four problems with these charges that are being made against him. First of all, the charge that they're making that Jesus is empowered by Satan is illogical. Maybe you remember the old Star Trek series, as Mr. Spock would say, it's illogical. Well, they were. They, they, they were being very illogical in what they're saying. And Jesus points out the illogic of it in verses 25 and 26. Look at what he says. Knowing their thoughts... Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. If you have a kingdom that is divided, a kingdom that's basically at war against itself, that is so severely split uh, that there's this this breach, uh, Jesus says it's laid waste. And he goes on, no city or even a household, a house divided against itself will stand. You can't have a kingdom You can't even have a city. For that matter, you can't have a a family that is divided against itself, where people are at odds with one another that's strong enough to stand. It it simply can't endure. Over time, it will be, as Jesus said, laid waste, or it will not stand. And Jesus is just making the point there. And then he applies it to the situation. Verse 26, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. So given this premise that a kingdom, a city, a house that's at odds with itself, that's divided, can't stand, well, Jesus says, certainly, if Satan is out casting out Satan, he's divided. How can he stand? In other words, Jesus is saying, why would, why would Satan be casting out his own demons who represent him? That's a victory for Satan, to have a demon oppressing, possessing another human being, taking this person made in the image of God and absolutely debasing him, degrading him, and to the point of destroying him, making him and all around him miserable. That's Satan's work. That's what Satan delights to do. Why would he then come along and cast the demon out of the person? It makes no sense at all. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. It's, it's illogical. It's absurd on the face of it. How then will his kingdom stand? Sometimes in their efforts to oppose Jesus, people will become quite illogical. Let's think about Dawkins' statement 
uh, suppose visitors from outer space did come and uh, somehow began the origin of life on Earth. Well, that may explain how life got on Earth, but it only removes the problem a step back. Um, where did that life come from? Did, did that life start when aliens from yet another planet visited that planet so they could later visit us? It only removes the problem one step back in trying to explain the origin of life. Now, this, is a, this is a renowned university professor, and yet wallowing in, in such an illogical, uh, untenable proposition to evade one simple truth that God created life. And that seems very foolish to him, and yet he could speak of extraterrestrial visitors coming to earth. Well, their charge here is illogical. Well, he's acting by the power of Satan. Well, Jesus says, why would Satan be casting out his own demons? And it doesn't take much to destroy that charge. Well, the second uh, problem that their, their accusation has, Jesus brings up, in verse 27, their charge is not only illogical, their charge is inconsistent. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, what are we to make of your sons? Well, he's probably not referring to the literal sons of the Pharisees, but more maybe to their disciples, uh, maybe to even their people, the Jewish people or other Pharisees. Uh, Jesus is saying, well, here I've done this, and you say it's by Satan. Well, Jesus wasn't the first person to come along uh, to exorcise or attempt to exorcise demons out of people. And perhaps, apparently, others had done so with some success among the Jews. Uh, and Jesus says, well, if I'm acting by the power of Satan, who, who, who's empowering your sons? Who's empowering your people? Who's empowering those exorcists who have acted? And you've never challenged them and never challenged the source of their power. Well, if I'm acting by Satan, who are they acting by? And so they're being inconsistent in singling out Jesus while not singling out or accusing others who've done exorcisms of acting by the power of the devil. And again, people who oppose Jesus, people who even oppose the existence of God, become inconsistent. They say, there is no God. How can they know? They've never, they haven't been everywhere. They don't know everything. Maybe they're missing some bit of evidence that is there. To make such a blanket statement and yet not have the evidence to back it up is extremely inconsistent. It is also a faith position. They say, well, you're acting on faith. I'm acting on the facts. No, they're not. They're acting on faith, too. Because they can't prove that there is no God. Even as you and I can't prove to the absolute exhaustive satisfaction of every skeptic out there the existence of God. Now, as Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, there are a lot of clues that together add, to a, add up to a very powerful testimony for the existence of God. But to say that, that we're acting on faith when they're standing on facts is, is simply absurd. Everyone ultimately holds beliefs in faith. It's just a matter of which beliefs you hold. Well, just as they're being inconsistent, people today are often inconsistent in their opposition to Jesus. They're illogical. This charge is inconsistent. A third thing that Jesus points out, a problem that's here with what they're saying, is that it exposes their own blindness. It exposes their own blindness. There's no one more blind 
than the people who can claim to see, who are not willing to learn, who are not willing to be taught. Remember John chapter 9, where Jesus healed a man who had been born blind from birth, and Jesus is speaking about that, uh, about this man. And he says, I, I came for judgment, that those who do not see may see, and those who see, or think they see, may become blind. And in John 9, 40, some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and said to him, are we also blind? Are you talking about us, Jesus? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Well, it's the same people, the same group anyway, the Pharisees, who thought they saw, who thought they understood, and yet their statement exposes, it reveals their own stark blindness. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, you know, if I'm casting out demons by the devil, who, by whom do, do your sons cast them out? And he goes on to say, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Let's grant that. Let's, it's a hypothetical. Let's say it's by the Spirit of God that I'm casting out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, their charge, all they can see is this man that they oppose, that they hate, who's doing these things. They can't deny he's doing these things. So they have to have some way to undermine it. And the best they can come up with is this charge that he's acting by the power of the devil. Well, Jesus says, let's, let's suppose for a moment that I am acting by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that the kingdom of God has come. Now, for you and me in our study of Matthew, this is nothing new, right? John the Baptist was back in the early chapters of Matthew saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, repent and believe the gospel. Well, here it is. The Messiah has come. These works, you know, as, as Jesus told the messengers from John to go tell him, the works, when John was in prison, the works Jesus is doing are fulfilling the very things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. The kingdom was right in front of them. In fact, the kingdom was embodied in Christ right in front of them. And they refused to see it. They can't see it. They're blind to it. The best they can come up with is to accuse Jesus of operating by the power of the devil. But Jesus explains, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder the goods unless he first binds the strong man, the guard? If there's someone guarding the place, you can't go in and plunder the house unless you first have taken care of the guard. Right? And then you can go in and plunder. Well, Jesus is saying here, how can I go and recapture this human being for the kingdom, this person who was made to know God, but is now under the possession of Satan, unless I first break Satan's power, get Satan out of there, and then I can plunder, to put it that way as Jesus does, reclaim this person for myself. Remember, the kingdom is taking back Satan's turf, where Satan holds sway. And has for a long time, and the kingdom of God is advancing. And so Jesus puts it that way. And yes, these, these casting out of demons represent the, the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, the power of the Holy Spirit, overcoming Satan and retaking for the Lord someone who was under Satan's power. But then Jesus makes a very strong statement in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
You see, the Pharisees wanted to just kind of set themselves up as kind of the, the arbiters, the, the judge of what's going on here, as if they're somehow neutral. And they're just explaining. Well, you see, he's just working by the power of the devil. Jesus says, basically, look, the kingdom is here. And you could set yourself up as these impartial judges that you pretend to be. But in fact, if you were not working with me, you were working against me. If you're not helping to gather the people of the kingdom with me, then you are working against me to scatter them. There is no neutrality. You know, the person who says you can't know if there's a God is making a very strong dogmatic statement. How do you know you can't know there's a God? On what information do you base that assumption? Well, not much other than they just decided it's that way. But they think it sounds so neutral, so open-minded. You just can't know for certain if God is there. You can't know for certain if Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that's a very strong statement. And on what basis or what authority or with what evidence do you make that statement? You see, it sounds so neutral. It sounds so open. And yet it's a very dogmatic statement. That needs to be challenged. Well, that's what Jesus does here with the the Pharisees. Look, he said, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not helping gather in the people, then you are working to scatter them, and you are at cross-purposes with the Spirit of God and at cross-purposes with the kingdom of God. Neutrality is impossible. Fourth response he makes. Fourth problem, not only is their charge illogical, not only is it inconsistent, not only does it reveal their own blindness to the the very presence of the kingdom in their midst, but it also is sin. Sin of a very powerful nature. Look at what Jesus says in verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And he basically, as as Hebrew language likes to do, Hebrew writing, you think of Proverbs and other places, it it repeats it, saying the same thing in a little different way. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. What on earth is Jesus talking about here? Well, he says there is sin and blasphemy that will be forgiven. That which is directed against Jesus, that which is directed against the Son of Man, that will be forgiven. But then he says blasphemy or speaking against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. What's the difference? You know, is is the Holy Spirit somehow higher up than Jesus? What's you know, they're both persons of the Godhead together with the Father. Why the distinction? What is Jesus talking about here? Why would one be forgiven and the other not? That's a hard question. There's been a lot of speculation about what Jesus is talking about here, why some would be forgiven, why others seems to be the unpardonable sin. And it helps in thinking about it to think in in a couple of categories. One, let's think about it in context, in the context of this passage. What situation is Jesus addressing? Well, he's addressing people who are confronted with the teaching of Jesus, confronted with the works of Jesus. They see it with their own eyes. It's right in front of them. And yet, the best they can do is attribute it to the devil in their opposition, in their rejection of it. Now, that's the, that's the biblical context. Let's also think about it in a theological context. Remember the plagues in Egypt with Moses and the the Lord was working through Moses and bringing these plagues on Pharaoh. It's interesting if you read through that. Someday I want to preach through Exodus. Um, 
you read through those passages, and sometimes, and what happens, the plague comes, but, but Pharaoh eventually decides not to let the people go, right, till the last one. And even then, he kind of changes his mind after the fact. But if you read through it carefully, you'll notice sometimes it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. At other times, it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You have to think about it on two levels. In fact, Paul picks that up in Romans 9. What's going on? Well, Pharaoh opposed God. Pharaoh wanted to keep these people as slaves. It was his own volition, his own will. But God was also at work hardening Pharaoh's heart. I suggest to you that same dynamic is going on here. These men are responsible for their rejection of the kingdom. And Jesus seems to say that they're guilty of speaking against the Holy Spirit. But it's also the work of God hardening their heart. Jesus said to them, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They believe in me. They follow me. But you don't. And so I think you have to look at it at two levels. The human level of their own opposition and rejection of Christ, but also the divine level that these men apparently as a group are reprobate. They'll never be forgiven. As a group, now there were Pharisees who were believers and became believers. Nicodemus was a case in point who helped Joseph of Arimathea remove Jesus' body from the cross. He'd apparently become a follower of Jesus. But as a group, Jesus is saying, you know, if you hold this attitude, this opposition, then you are, you know, there's no forgiveness for you now or in eternity because you're revealing that, that God's not changing your heart. Now, those two contexts, the biblical context, the theological context, help us to understand what's going on here. People have blasphemed Jesus and become Christians. Think of Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul, who not only opposed Jesus, but opposed the church to the point of being either directly or indirectly responsible for the deaths of Christians, simply because they were Christians. And yet the Lord saved Paul, made him a teacher and leader, apostle of the church. And since that time, there have been people who were profane and blasphemous and wicked men and women whom the Lord has brought to himself, who at one point in their life had nothing good to say about Jesus, and yet later had a lot of good things to say about him and in his name. Well, what's going on? What's the difference between that and, and this blasphemy or speaking against the Spirit? Well, it seems that the point that Jesus is making when we take all of this into consideration is this. Then passages like Hebrews 6, we read earlier, Hebrews 10, seem to indicate some of this same thing. That although God in his sovereignty will save his own, there are people who, even with the gospel preached, even with the evidence of, of Christians around them, will continue to reject it and continue to stand against it uh, to the very end, uh, attributing the work of God to the devil, saying that the work of God, the gospel, that Christ, all of that's evil, it needs to be rejected. And there are people who say that, that that is an unpardonable, unforgivable sin. In other words, to reject the, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testimony of the gospel, until you die. Now, that brings up a couple of uh, practical points. You know, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Am I guilty of that kind of thing? Well, the very fact that you're concerned for your own spiritual welfare enough to ask the question is by definition proof that you haven't because such a person would not really care uh, at all. Well, has someone I know committed it? Well, here's where we have to be careful. You say, you know, that is such a hardened, you know, foul-mouthed, profane, ornery human being. Well, 
God can save them. You don't write somebody off. You just don't know whom God will save. We let God determine who's committed the unpardonable sin, not us. As far as we're concerned, we share the gospel with people. We pray as we have opportunity, and they're willing to listen. We pray for people uh, and so forth uh, as long as we can in the hopes that God will draw that person to himself. Well, people will go to great lengths to avoid the reality of God, and even for someone who's not an atheist but may just want to uh, not acknowledge Jesus is who he claimed to be. Any argument, no matter how implausible, may sound convincing. In that day, well, he's empowered by Satan. You know, today, well, he was a great teacher. He was a good moralist. He was a good man. Or he was a legend. He never existed. Or he did exist. He was a revolutionary who failed and was executed by the Romans, but the church thought he was a hero. And they made up all these great legends and stories about him. Well, that's not dealing with reality. That's not dealing with the facts. The truth for them, the truth for us is this. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The Lord Jesus, the king of the kingdom, has come, fully man and fully God. And by his death and resurrection, he has broken the power of Satan, the strong man, and he is plundering Satan's domain, taking people into the kingdom. He's come to set us free. He's come to make us whole. They ask, can this be the son of David? Simple answer, yes. So we need to drop lame excuses. We need to abandon silly pretenses. You see, our obligation and our opportunity is to believe in Jesus, is to follow Jesus. The Lord has blessed you. He's blessed us with the light of the gospel. We must not reject it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the light of the gospel. Thank you that you've made it known to us. And Father, we pray, certainly, that Satan would not, we pray our own fallen hearts, would not blind us to the truths of the gospel, to what it means for our lives. Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit. We do not speak against him. We do not blaspheme him. We welcome him. We pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to impress upon us the truths of your word, realities of your gospel, that we would follow Jesus to the end. We pray in his name. Amen.